The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We've only, we've only just got over an hour to um, complete this. So, first of all, I want to see what other questions arose out of the first part, and then I'll talk a little bit more. Um, can you please talk a little bit more about grounding in friendliness so that you don't get compassion depleted? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, let's... Uh, a pra- and maybe a practical exercise. Well, the practical exercise is making sure you do metta for yourself for a considerable period. Uh, that's the real thing. Um, it doesn't get much more practical than that. Is, you know, for example, to select for a period of time, and I'm not talking about sort of a couple of times a week, but for a long period of time, um, even three months of just doing metta towards yourself before you start to develop it towards others. In my own training, we had to do three months on each particular individual. So you did three months on yourself, three months on basically the person you cared for, three months on the person you found neutral, three months on the person you found difficult, and there were some others in between. But it was basically that thing. So you spent a whole year doing the practice. Yeah. You're yeah, developing it without any other practice at all. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little more what is, it, what is exactly, what, is, what do you do when you say you practice metta? Ah, well, I will come to that. Oh. Yes. <laughs> that was an easy one to do. We will come to that. Yeah. I guess I have the mic. Um, I'm just thinking about the relationship between the uh, practice of metta. Maybe you'll say more about this. And the it can't, we can't, it actually can't be heard, is it? Well, do it like this. Okay. Yeah. So the relationship between the practice of metta and what it takes to really understand like the, the dependent origination that you were talking about yesterday. I mean, just my personal experience mm-hmm. was that I couldn't do the metta practice without a long time of really looking at craving. And I mean, I couldn't do an explicit metta practice mm-hmm. without a long time of really just being doing more of the bare attention and letting the craving be seen and... And so forth. So, okay. Um, well, it's not an either or. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an either or. Um, you know, first of all, it's helpful if you you feel that that's the case to really begin to understand what's going on in dependent origination, to really begin to understand those links in the chain between contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and to really see those, mm-hmm. to really, really start to see those, and perhaps start to release some of the tendencies. But you see, even in a practice like that, when you're looking at that, and often I encourage people when I do this myself, is actually to bookend, bookend that practice with doing some metta. You know, so, for example, you start with it, do it for a period, however long you select, it really doesn't matter. Then do your more, what you're calling, bare attention. I mean, I could well, say I'm quite sure a bit. Yeah. yeah. And then finish off with some metta as well. You see, I think, I think my own personal feeling about this is we shouldn't just concentrate on one type of practice um, in the sense that I don't, I don't recommend going all over the place and trying bits and pieces all over the but, but I think metta should be a fundamental part of it, either implicitly or explicitly. Yeah? 
implicitly it was easier than explicitly. <laughs> I mean, just re- holding the whole thing in in a, in a kindness to myself to look into what's going on. You know? Yeah, I mean, holding things in the kindness towards yourself, or hold, uh, the way that you hold and treat the mind, I think is absolutely fundamental, whatever practice you're doing. If that's samatha practice, or whether it's vipassana practice, or obviously explicit metta practice. But particularly the first two is, you know, it's all the things I was saying just before the break, how you come back, how you bring the mind back. What do you do when your mind drifts off? What do you do when that self-critic arises and things like that it's all about that that's where the meta can be implicit in that holding period right yeah. that, that's very true yeah. yeah yeah and i think i think we keep need to keep reminding ourselves of that yeah i think this is what's important we need to keep reminding ourselves not to brutalize ourselves yeah um, I have, um, Hang on, there's one going on over there. Tony, when, when finished over? <coughs> yeah, um, okay. is it on? It's, as far as we know, it's recording, but the speakers are on stuff. And uh. it's working for the hearing assistant devices, too. Right. So, so the, people, the people with the earphones can hear, but the people without them can't hear. <laughs> 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 So just two brief questions. The first is you mentioned um, practicing metta for three months for each person. Yeah. Was that full-time in a monastic environment? Or that, was, that, that was in a monastic environment, yes, okay. it was. Do you have recommendations for people who are in the caring professions for amount of time? Uh, for the amount of time? That they spend, because most of us can't spend eight hours a day on the cushion. No, no, no. I, well, what I would recommend is actually, say, for example, selecting either yourself or one of the other categories, and doing that, you know, say for a two, three-week period mm-hmm. in your whatever, how much time you select for your daily practice mm-hmm. to do that for that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to, to, you know, to do that and not keep swapping around. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the important thing about it, not keep swapping around. My quick follow-up question is, um, I'm wondering if you're going to be covering metta combined with Vipassana practice or insight-oriented practice mm-hmm. from a practitioner's point of view today? I'm going to talk a little bit about the way that we use the phrases in, in a different way in what I am considering to be the insight way as opposed to the more concentration practice way. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's where we're going to go fairly soon. So. <laughs> yeah. Hello. I've been asked to speak up... Um, which I'm giving metta to myself for having to speak up loudly. Um, The idea of metta is to bring the heart um, more to life, as as I'm hearing you again Mm -hmm. today. And one of the um, obstacles for me can be too much conceptualizing. Uh, I am thinking of the metta practices now and realizing that when I'm doing metta for myself and for those people with whom I am intimate, Mm-hmm. I can get in quite lively relationship. It's when my practice... Ah, thank you. <laughs> it's coming to life now. <laughs> when my practice is you know, to turn to the north, to turn to the south and the east and the west, I just feel a drifting and a disconnectedness because of the conceptual aspects of the practice. 
itself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know if you had helpful ways to allow the heart to stay in vital connection with an expanded um, reality that is largely, for me, still conceptual. An expanded reality that's largely conceptual. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, as, by as its very nature, all beings, all beings. Yeah, I mean, by its very nature, I think let, let, there's a couple of elements to this question. Let's try and tease them apart. Expanded reality in relation to conception. Well, conception is not reality. Let's get that clear. Conception is exactly that. It's conception. In, in later Buddhist philosophy, conception is considered to be what's called a fiction. Yeah. We're dealing with fictions here. So it's actually connecting with the reality as much as you can, grounding yourself in the pragmatic reality of it. So this is the reason why we use phrases, we use visualizations as a way of prompting the mind to contact those individuals who you're visualizing or even just thinking about or having a feeling about, but without getting into other conceptualizations about them. We don't have to get into other stuff about them. That's really what's pretty basic about it. So it's not kind of calling to mind, for example, somebody who you have a close relationship with and thinking about all their qualities and thinking of anything, you know, conceptualizing around them. But it's just, in a sense, taking that person and now trying to incline the mind in this aspect of metta towards that person. So it's really quite basic. Yeah. May I um, ask this question in a slightly different way? Sure. When I have practiced metta... Um, I found it very useful to take the person, be it myself or another mm. person whose face I know, yep. and actually visualize that face mm-hmm. at at some distance from me and create um, a, a cycle that actually comes back to feed my heart and my heart goes back to feed that image of that person. Right. When I'm dealing with what for me are concepts like everyone in the north, all beings in the north, Mm. all beings in the south, my practice starts to, does not have that vitality. Mm. And I, so I guess I'm struggling with, uh, I understand that after self and mentor and neutral person and the person with whom I have difficulty, that there are 128, um, perhaps I've got that number approximate, um, uh, uh, practices that take you further afield. And it's in that field which, for me, is conceptual, where it's not very robust, yep. and I need hand-holding there as perhaps some other practicum that I might use to create vitality. Well, you might, not even, need to, you might not even need to go into those other practices at this stage. It would be my first thing. Really ground yourself in the practices of the fundamental categories before trying to expand it. Certainly not get into having to think of all the directions, above, below, north, south, east, west. I mean, these are all... It gets a bit busy, doesn't it? (laughs) Just think, in a sense, if you're going to do anything like that, or, for example, if you're doing meta-practice in a group, of extending it towards all the people in the group, if you can, those who you're sitting with. Or, for example, to extend it just outside of the room 
you know, as a vague, even just a vague feeling of what it would be feel like to hold others in a sense of friendliness who might be walking past your meditation hall chatting, you know, or whatever it is if you're doing it in a city context. You know, so I think there's many ways of playing with this, that, but fundamentally ground yourself in the basic categories before even trying to extend it further. Yeah. And, and when you do try and extend it further, keep it simple. Really keep it simple. Um, we, if, if we give ourselves too much busyness, then the mind goes astray yet again. It literally has too much to think. Yeah. And then it becomes intoxicated with its own thoughts <laughs> you know, in that way. So keep it simple is my advice in that, in that instance. Yeah. I think Tony's coming with microphones. There is no such thing as... Uh Karuna practice, there's no such thing as uh, equanimity practice, there's no such thing as mudita. You start with metta, and from metta, Mm -hmm. they all come into being. Yes. They grow. They grow out of that soil. That's why, um, why I personally place, and some of the teachers I studied with, placed so much emphasis on the development of metta. Not because the others are not important, but because if you don't get this, this ground right, this soil that we, in a sense, are growing these other things from, then they won't come into being. Or they'll come into being in a very malformed way. Um, you know, for example, compassion can take, for the individual who's trying to do it, if they, for example, haven't been grounded in metapractice properly, uh, can take very destructive forms for themselves. You know, you can feel overwhelmed. I mean, one of the most common things I often get with people who are doing karuna practice is to say, actually, when I start to do this practice, I just begin to feel overwhelmed by the pain of the world and what's going on. Now, actually, none of this is supposed to be done, in a sense, without the balance to that. Because the karuna practice is balanced by the joy practice. You know, usually, you know, the mudita practice is usually tra- translated as sympathetic joy or something of that sort. Well, one of the ways I personally would extend it, actually, is, and this is not traditional at all, but is, I think, really quite important, is beginning to extend that sense of gratitude for your own joys, the, your own good fortune as well. You know, starting to ground that, you know, towards yourself, because it helps to balance the sense of the pain of the karuna practice. So you need to be fairly robust, is what I'm saying. And the robustness comes from the development of the metta, but the co-development of the karuna with the mudita. Because otherwise, we're just left with misery. Now, I'm not downplaying that. I'm not really even making a joke about that, but we are. Because we're suddenly somehow confronted with all of the pain of the world. It's overwhelming. Doesn't it ever strike you that the pain of the world is overwhelming? However, as one of the phrases in uh, a Singhalese version of the phrases for Mudita goes, the life, is, life is but a play of joy and sorrow. 
It's not all joy and it's not all sorrow. You know, for most of us, anyway. You know, but it's a play, it's an interplay of those two things. So in a sense, to get the equanimity, which is all this is aiming at, you have to balance that sense of what's going on um, for yourself and for others. So it is play, it's the play of joy and sorrow. Um, and that's fundamentally grounded. These are the two things that are fundamentally grounding, uh, grounded in the meta practice itself. So they become the supports, the upholders of the other stuff. Putting in very, very simple terms, the meta practice is an enormous resource for you. If you really want to build up resources, something you can draw on in difficult times, and let's face it, meditation if you're engaged in meditation over long periods of time, either on retreats or just in your daily practice doing it, it ain't all roses and light, is it? It's not all sweetness and light. You go through the peaks and troughs. And when you go through the troughs, you really need support. And if you haven't got external support, then you need that internal support. And the internal support is the friendliness, the kindness, the gentleness, with which we can hold difficulty. Yeah. Because it's how we hold that difficulty. Sorry, it's a long answer again. To Does sh- I know you're uh, interested in Shantideva. Does Shantideva address that uh, in the way that you... You see, mo- I've, I've always been confused. I thought, well, you do metta, and then you work on the karuna, and then you work on the mudita. Mm. And then, you know, you... I don't know how equanimity comes into being, but what you said earlier, you know, and I tested with my own experience, I found that if I truly were able to just rest in some meta for five or ten minutes, something happens around me, and I'll, the natural compassion, which is, I didn't do anything, I didn't even know I had that emotion, it came mm. flying out. Mm. And then I went, okay, this, this now makes more, uh, I can see the process occurring. Yes. It's a natural outgrowth of the development of matter. Now, obviously, to develop it in wholesome ways, we have to steer it in certain... And that's what the phrases do. They steer it in certain ways, as do the mudita phrases as well. They help to hold it in a particular framework so that we develop it. You know, if, you, if you've got a plant and you're trying to grow it, it can either straggle all over the place or you can grow it into a beautiful specimen of the plant. Well, we're trying to grow beautiful specimens here. I'm using the Buddha's agricultural metaphors or horticultural metaphors here. Um, we're trying to grow it in a very beautiful way. And so it will need some frame in order to hold it. And that's what the actual phrases that we use, those are the frames to hold it. But it is a natural outgrowth. Yeah, it is a natural outgrowth of this. Just, is that it? Um, just, just these two more questions and then we'll move on. Otherwise, I won't get finished with what I'd like to say. So I would just like to ask you to repeat the um, quote from a long chin rub. Jumper. <laughs> yeah, out of the soil of compassion. Yeah. What's the rest of it? Okay. <laughs> it's being recorded, but that's... Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you today. I think, I think, uh, personally, I think this is very beautiful, which is why I quoted it right at the beginning of the, um, you know, the session this afternoon, this morning. Okay. Out of the soil of metta, out of the soil of friendliness, 
grows the beautiful bloom of compassion. Watered with tears of joy, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Do you want me to do that again? Is that? Okay. Out of the soil of friendliness, metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion. Watered by tears of joy, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Now, I think the reason why I use that image is, in a sense, because of the question that was just asked, which is it gives you the interdynamics of it. Yeah? That actually it's not this linear... <laughs> it's not this linear march from meta to upeka. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all growing together. But we ha- like anything growing, and, and again, I'm not joking about the, the metaphor here, It's getting that soil right, preparing that ground for these other things to grow in in the most beautiful way that they can grow in your life. And this is something that I really would emphasize, that you all can grow these aspects in your experience. This This is not an impossibility. This is not a monastic trip. This is something we can all grow in our daily experience. It just takes a little time, that's all. But it changes your relationship with the world. Yeah. Changes your relationship with if you change your relationship with yourself, if you actually fundamentally change your relationship with yourself and you can hold yourself in much greater friendliness, then chances are that you're going to hold others if you can hold all of your imperfections in friendliness, then you can begin to hold the imperfections of others as well. It literally is we do unto others as we do unto ourselves. Although I came across a misquote of that recently, which a child had written, which was, do unto others before they do unto unto you. (laughs) (laughs) Could you say something about the mechanics of metta practice as an insight practice, how, how it generates insight? Yeah, that really takes me on to where I want to go now, and then I'll say a few more other theoretical remarks. The practice of this, it's not difficult at all, but it, I think it needs a slight reorientation from ways that possibly that you use phrases in perhaps the way you've been taught hitherto which is, generally speaking, when we're using metta more as a concentration practice, there tends to be kind of endless repetition of the phrases. Yep. They almost become mantric. You repeat the phrases, and you repeat the phrases, and you repeat the phrases, and they're very good at getting you focused, um, but they can be awfully repetitious as well. I mean, I don't know if you've had this, but I've had lots of students come to me and say, you know, I get so bored with doing this, it's going to keep on repeating the same things again and again and again. And that's partly because it is you being used primarily as a concentration practice, so you will get focus out of it. Now, in the way that we use this as much more of an insight practice, it's not about the repetitions. 
what I would describe this as, and you've got to bear in mind this is slightly a metaphor as well, is that it becomes, instead of something which is endlessly repeated, it becomes more of a listening practice. So in other words, you might actually only say the phrase is over a 45-minute session five or six times. But you listen. Listen to your heart. Listen to what's in your heart when you say those phrases. May, you know, let's just use one example of the metaphrase. May I be safe and protected. May I be at peace. May I live in this world with kindness and with ease. Now, you could say that over again and again and again, and that would then be concentration. But saying it the way I've just said it, you know, may I live in these particular ways, you know, then what you're doing is listening in a sense for the resonances. How do you feel? Because actually, sometimes I might utter those phrases, may I, may I be at peace, may I be safe and protected, May I live with kindness and with ease in this world? And actually, you don't feel it. You actually don't feel it. There's your insight, immediately. Yeah, that's what's happening. You've got to listen, in some senses, for the rebound, the echo. What's coming back to you? You might even, perhaps, not want to recite the whole of the metaphrase. You might want to only just use one line out of it. May I be safe and protected? Or may I be at peace? So you're coming into a relationship with the phrases. You're not merely repeating them. You're developing a relationship with them. And often, I mean, what I, particularly on longer retreats, what I encourage people to do is to try and reformulate these phrases in words which preserves the spirit of them, but mean something more to you. Yeah. So that, because you're going to have a working relationship with this. And again, you've got to bear in mind that a lot of what I'm saying is, is in a sense, couched in metaphor. But one of the things that you're doing, in a sense, is dropping a pebble into a well. Into the well of your being. This is what we're doing. You drop the metaphrase into the well of your being and see what comes out, what circles come out in terms of the ripples that are there. And those are the insights. The insights might be of unworthiness, they might be of arrogance, they might be of all sorts of things that are coming up for you. And people I've worked with this in this particular way, often I've seen incredibly profound changes in their relationship with this. So it becomes a listening relationship, not a repeating relationship with it. So you literally listen for what is between the words, behind the words, within the words. Yeah. There's so many different ways of listening to these. Um, but it's all about slowness as well. Yeah, it's about slowing down, learning to slow the whole process down because we can get into this endless gabble and then it just becomes words, it just becomes concepts actually. Um, conceptualizations and this is not what it's about it's about the feeling of it yeah. how does it settle how does it settle in your mind when you say a phrase like that now, if we had time we could 
do a practice, but we haven't got time, unfortunately, to see how it settles in your minds. In your heart mind, yeah. That's exactly right. And so this is the practicalities of it. You know, whatever the phrases are, whether they are the meta phrases, the ones I've just given you, or whether it's the karuna phrase or the mudita phrase or whatever. You know, it's how do they settle into you? What comes up? You know, as you know that in Vipassana meditation, when we're doing basic, just simple insight meditation, just mindfulness meditation, what we're doing is not about staying with the breath. You know, that becomes concentration. Staying with the breath is really actually quite easy if you want to discipline the mind comparatively. It's being aware and awake to where that mind goes when it's not with the breath. That is where your insight is. You know, the fact often that our minds can't stay with the breath actually shows us insight that our minds are undisciplined. You know, lack um, the ability to attend. Or that's the very most simple way. Or then we start to see the patterns that arise in the mind of fear, anxiety. You know, sometimes joy, sometimes egotism. You know, whatever it might be, you begin to see these patternings of the mind that are arising. And I think, actually, when we treat the Brahma-Vihara practices as insight practices, we do it exactly the same. We see what happens. However, here we are using constructs, we're using concepts, in a sense, to reframe, resettle, and see what happens with the mind. And in fact, gives a fair description of the practice, but this is what the practice is. It's allowing us space, time, slowness to actually see what's there within the mind. Now, without that, without doing any of that, then it becomes simply a concentration practice. Yeah. And as a concentration practice, it has its efficacy. I wouldn't uh, dismiss that at all, but I think it actually misses out on the power of it. It really misses out on the power to actually touch that heart-mind. Because this is what it's about. It's touching that heart-mind. This is, you know, there's me- literally I would say that um, metta is the beating heart of the practice. Yeah. Without metta, the practice has no heart. <laughs> now I'm playing around obviously with words here, but I mean, that is in a sense what happens when we just do kind of a very cold, vipassana-looking type practice. It has no heart to it, which is even why we have to incorporate the gentleness, the kindness, into the practice itself. So a good practice actually incorporates whatever you're doing, incorporates all. You know, a meta-practice, in the way I'm describing it, obviously involves some concentration, the ability to attend to what is there, it certainly involves the insight. This is what I'm claiming. You know, and the metta is there, obviously, because that's what we're generating. Equally so with a good Vipassana practice. is Obviously, you've got to have concentration to a degree in order to be able to do this. But you also have to have the metta in order to be able to treat the mind respectfully. To treat it in a, in a way which is respectful and not brutalizing um, in the way that we handle where the mind goes, what it attends to, where it's gone. And also, of course, it's Vipassana, so there's insight there. Equally, concentration practice doesn't exclude insight. Um, and, and actually, it needs an awful lot of metta 
concentration practice. Otherwise, I'm afraid I think that a lot of concentration practice is very brutal. Yeah. It's like sort of bashing the mind into submission. <laughs> you know, just hammering it down into submission. Yeah. So that really is the basic protocol for doing insight brahma viharas yeah. you will look stunned now <laughs> there's a lady over there as well so. <clears throat> um, so I guess eventually I'll ask you for a daily or monthly prescription per meta, but you know, so often the way that meta is taught here, it's kind of an add-on. Okay, we'll do some meta. Or you'll do a few minutes before you do your real practice and a few minutes after you do your real practice. And um, so what you're pr- proposing is sounds fairly radical, but for those of us who are, well, but my practice is working for me. I'm afraid to experiment with it. So what would your prescription be for, should we just try meta for an extended period of time, weeks at a time, and see yeah. what happens? Yeah, I would. I'd certainly try it for that period of time. As with any practice, whether, whether your practice is, is with Vipassana, with concentration, or whether it's you know, Brahma Vihara practice, Metta practice, then you have to do it for protracted period, periods of time. I mean, I can give you an example from my own year, really. I will divide my year up into basically doing three practices. I will do some concentration, not so much, I will do protracted periods, long periods, say four or five months of, of um, Vipassana-type practice, and a, a three months of good metta practice every year. Yeah. And varying them through the year. Not so that you're skipping from one to the other in the same kind of time span, but that you actually do that for that period. I think you have to do this, actually, and just for a very, very practical reason is that your practice can become stale as well. You've got to keep refreshing it in some way or another. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to be a dilettante, moving from one thing to the other all the time. You know, like, I'll do one day of this and I'll do a day of that, or a week of this and a week of that. This is much more about sticking with a practice so you start to see the fruits of that practice for a long period of time. But I think it's useful to do that because of this, this tendency for the practice to become slightly stale after a while. So you're refreshing yourself throughout the year. Keeps you interested <laughs> as well. Yeah. Maybe if you kind of the doubt, especially try some of these, these things that are new. Like yeah. When first for me when I first started medical practice it was very dry. Yeah. Right. Till I started dropping enough of those pebbles that were pretty charged in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I I think practice need practice needs juice. In it. it really does need some juice in it. It needs, it needs to be kind of fresh. Um, otherwise, it becomes simply another habit. Yeah? It becomes, actually, it becomes Silabata Paramasa. It becomes another rite and ritual. Yeah? This is what the Buddha is really saying, and all too often, unfortunately, our meditation practice it becomes exactly that. I do it exactly the same time every day, and I do exactly the same practice, and I'm doing exactly the same things, and I'm observing exactly the same thing. I'm joking about this, but you know, it becomes another ritual. <laughs> you know, and you're just going through the motions. Now, this is not what it's about. It's not going through the motions. It's keeping it alive, you know. You don't want a kind of dead meditation practice. You want a live one, something that really is, is 
you're learning from all the time. And the way to do that, I think, is just my rec one recommendation is just to kind of divide up your year and say, I'm going to do this for this period of time and see what happens. And no matter if I find it difficult, I stick with that practice. Yeah. It is a good way of helping with doubt as well, because you know, this word doubt, which I think I wrote up on the board the other day, where is it? It's here. Sada, which is the opposite of it. That's what we need. Confidence, trust in what we're doing. We need to develop confidence in it. Um, doubt itself, Vichikitsha, is going to undermine everything you do. Yeah. It really does, just kills your practice. It's good, good sort of Mara stuff <laughs> coming in. <laughs> you know, Mara comes in and it will kill your practice at the moment you start to do that. But you know, if you stick with it and you go through the hard times and you come out the other side of it, often that really strengthens your confidence in what you're doing. But you do have to stay with it with protracted periods of time because otherwise um, we become butterflies. You know, just butterflying from one thing to the other. There was a lady I remember over there, yeah. Um, I was given um, metta pra practice by a teacher. because I was in a long retreat and a lot of aversion, hatred and ill will came up. And I find myself... Um, not listening. You just give me the way to do it. Mm. I, I, I feel like sometimes I'm doing the phrase like beating, beating it down, yeah. beating to, um, to replace the, the hatred in your will. Yes. And can you just speak to the using the practices as a way to I guess you already have. <laughs> <laughs> I think I probably have, but I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when when we use it, yes. I mean, at its worst aspect, meta practice, when it's used more as concentration, is like trying to beat your mind into submission. You know, it becomes a way of kind of clubbing it. <laughs> yeah, so it come, becomes a little bit, um, I don't know, more metered. <laughs> In the worst possible sense, because you, you're just using the phrases again and again and again and again and again to kind of hone it down in a certain way. I personally doubt whether, I wouldn't say ever, but I doubt for most people whether it actually works in developing any real sense, feeling of metta in that. Whereas what I'm suggesting in the way that we use it here, when we use it more as a listening method, we give ourselves the opportunity for feeling to arise. We're not trying to sort of smash ourselves into a feeling, but actually allow it to genuinely arise by keep on inclining the mind towards something, which is what we do actually in the concentration practice, but we don't do it in such a forceful way to allow whatever naturally there is to arise also, so that we begin to see the obstacles to the development of the genuine feeling arising. And do we then learn to work with the obstacle? In other words, the obstacle that arises becomes a source for metta. Because we hold that kindly. Yeah. We're not pushing it away. 
Yes, you befriend whatever is arising. So when my mind, uh, in the initial stage, let's face it, I mean, most of us find meta quite difficult to develop, particularly for ourselves in the initial stages. And as I said, you know, you might use the phrases, and actually when I use the phrases, may I be safe and protected, may I be at, may I be at peace, may I live with friendliness and ease in this world. You might not feel that at all. You might not, because of our backgrounds often, our conditioning, there are often great obstacles and blockages to that. It says, actually, I'm not worthy of that. In fact, this is self-indulgence. I've heard so many people say that. You know, to extend these phrases towards myself in that way is just mere self-indulgence. That's Protestant culture, actually, most of it. Yeah. And I say that you know, sort of advisedly because I think that's what's going on in Britain as well. It's Protestant culture. We get this stuff that actually we should be concentrating on others, not on ourselves, you know, or focusing on others. So we might not get that. So we get this feeling of unworthiness, perhaps, that arises in relationship to all that. The unworthiness itself becomes then the source of being able to befriend that unworthiness. So you're generating meta within the insights that you're actually allowing to arise about how you actually feel at this moment. Now, obviously, because it's the mind, this is a changing relationship. It will change over periods of time. If you allow yourself the opportunity and you allow yourself the opportunity to keep on befriending what comes up, then the chances of the genuine meta arising is actually open for you within this. And so it, it becomes a softening process. You know? So what is hard is met with softness. You know? It's very. It's, it's almost like the Taoist image, isn't it? You know, of that which is thinks itself hard is worn down by the soft. You know, water erodes stone. Yeah, and it's the same with meta erodes. You know, or the befriending process will erode whatever hard, you know, hard judgments that we make on ourselves. Does that kind of answer your? Any one more, and perhaps? Well, just one more, and then I'll, I'll go on towards the conclusion. Yeah. Hold on, you need a... <laughs> uh, all right, you mentioned that they uh, cultivate the soil of a friendly, friendliness. And uh, could you elaborate more? And the, it's, a, it's a metaphor, you know, it's a field, cultivate the field, but the, it, what do you mean exactly, you know, actually, in practical terms? I think I've just been explaining that. <laughs> in actual practical terms, what you're cultivating is the field of your being, how you are at this moment in time. You know, everything that arises in relationship to doing the practice becomes, if you like, the um, soil for cultivation. You know, you're reworking it over, you're taking out the stones, you're taking out the boulders. I know I'm using more metaphors here, but that's what we're doing. Every time something hard arises to the surface, you know, it's like somebody plowing a field. Everything sometimes hard rises to the surface, you remove it. But we don't remove it forcibly here, we allow it to remove itself, interestingly enough, um, by having been seen 
by having been acknowledged. So in practice, let me really come down to the actual practice again, and just to remind everybody before I kind of draw everything to a conclusion, is that what we're doing is listening to what is arising. We're using the phrases as instances of, or opportunities to listen, yeah, rather than talk. <laughs> you know, the mind is chattering all the time, isn't it? We're talking all the time. So we're allowing ourselves by using these phrases as a way of listening to something. Mm -hmm. Listening to the resonances that arise from that practice. Now that is cultivation. That is the cultivation of the soil. Whatever is arising itself, whether that be hard or whether it be soft, whether it be a kind of pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought, a feeling of unworthiness or a feeling of joyfulness, that itself becomes befriended with the mind which is receptive and open and gentle towards it. When um, we continue to do that, it's like really continuing to plough our field again and again and again and again. And as was indicated earlier on by one of the other questions, I've ha after a while, then things like compassion and that are not things you do. They're what arise naturally. It's almost as if the field now has enough um, nutriment in it to enable the, um, you know, the, the flower of compassion to arise naturally out of it. So the practice is really, the practicalities of it is to keep doing it again and again and again, but not obsessively, compulsively doing it again and again and again, but to do it in this, you know, slowing down way, in slowness. You know, this is much... Ugh, I'm getting off into a rant here, aren't I? <laughs> but uh, I was going to say, we live our lives at incredible speed these days, and it's getting faster, a lot of it. And actually what these practices, meta-practice and all the practices, but particularly meta-practice, is about beginning to slow, to slow down. To slow down is to treat respectfully. To slow down is to pay attention. To slow down is to actually see, to hear, to look, to listen. And this is what we're doing. We're beginning to slow down and allowing ourselves the opportunity to, for those qualities which are covered over by busyness to naturally arise. I see it's a kind of... Uh, the, when I do... Uh, Vipassana meditation or uh, <coughs> staying with breath and I can see the we can practice implicitly you know the matter in the sense that the, any sort arising we treat it accept it nicely gently yes exactly and this but without really uh, actually uh, verbalizing the meta phrases yeah, that's, that's the implicit use of metta. That's, that's why I say that no, no, no practice which is being done in a sense um, properly excludes metta. It has to include metta because it's the gentle way in which we treat the mind. Now, this is not self-indulgence. It's not a cop-out. It's also the, just that ability to hold whatever arises gently but also to return the mind gently back to the object of focus, which is generally the breath in these cases. 
Okay, so in the implicit sense, uh, uh, I can understand. Yeah, we, we got meta gotta be part of any practice. Yes, but uh, okay, but you you are saying that the, it's beneficial to set aside certain time of the day or year. You yeah. know, this just uh, so uh, explicitly focused. Explicitly do it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's right. Thank and then you'll find that the implicit is easier to do yes. as well. Okay. Yeah. So you've got to bear in mind that none of these practices are mutually exclusive. Uh-huh. None of them are mutually exclusive. They actually all benefit each other. You know, so if you're, doing, if you're doing metta practice, that's certainly going to benefit your vipassana practice. If you're doing vipassana practice, that's going to help you in your ability to attend to what's going on in your, in your meta practice, and they're both going to help and aid concentration practice and concentration practices and get, going to aid both of those. So please don't see these as being all kind of, well, I do one thing and I'm a Vipassana practitioner, you know, which I hear so much of. You know. okay. Perhaps I ought to move on to the finish. Yeah. Again, it's a whodunit. <laughs> <laughs> It was me, honestly. (laughs) Okay, let me just kind of make some final remarks here about this. I want to say a little bit more about karuna here, about um, compassion with the way that the Buddha sees it, the way it's portrayed in much of the text, and particularly within the Brahma-Vihara practice. Karuna is the impulse towards tenderness and concern. Yeah? I would really emphasize those words, tenderness and concern. Actually, compassion cares. That's another way of putting it. Compassion cares. Actually, mindfulness cares too. <laughs> yeah. Mindfulness cares about what it's doing. That's why these practices are other dimensions of mindfulness. They're not excluded from it. They're not sort of something else that we're doing here that's not, you know, it's not samasati. These are all samasati. These are all right mindfulness. So it has concern. It's basically it's concerned to alleviate the pain of others. Now, Shantideva describes this, and I think he describes it beautifully in the Bodhicharya Avatar, which is a Mahayana text. It's not, not in the early text, but I think he really picks up on something that's very, very important. He says, you know, it, it's, you know it, it's concerned to alleviate pain just as instinctively as the hand reaches out to pluck out a thorn that is embedded in the foot, in your own foot. It reaches out in just the same way, instinctively, to do that to engage with the other as well. So it's you see the other's pain um, and you reach out. Now that might be reaching out with the mind because obviously we can't you know, be present with everybody, everybody is suffering um, in the way that, um, you know, that there is this endless sea of dukkha out there. But it's that tendency of the mind to wish to to wish to move out towards others. And actually, often, more often than not, we can find ways of helping in many ways. Yeah. 
Now, in order for that to happen, and I haven't used this phrase, but I think it's been implicit, uh, that meta is the melting of the heart. It's the melting of the heart that allows that to happen. And so karuna, rather than seeing, actually, and I've spoken about them almost as being two separate things so far. I've spoken about metta, and I've, obviously it's been the main concentration of what I've been speaking about over you know, this morning. Um, and I've spoken a little bit about karuna. And it almost sounds like they're two separate things, doesn't it? Actually, they're not. Let's, get over, let's overcome this mythology that metta and karuna are two separate things. Metta is the melting of the heart. Karuna is metta in action. That's all it is. Yeah, it's just metta in action. Mm. So first, the development of this boundless friendliness, this expansive friendliness, which melts the heart towards ourselves and towards others. And then it becomes karuna as action. Hence, the, again, the root here to act. Yeah, to turn, to see others, to move away. Yeah. Now, the disciple who's perfected in this is actually described in the Pali Canon. It's very interesting. This is this phrase which is called Sabaloka Anukampi, a person who pulsates with compassion for the well-being of the world. Sabaloka Anukampi. Yeah, a person who pulsates with compassion for the world. Yeah. And that's what we can become. This is our possibility. This is our possibility of being. Now, I think this is, <clears throat> for me, one of the main things about the Brahma Viharas seen in this way is they're not kind of adjunct practices, but they're possibilities of our human flourishing in this world. And if anything that I think that the early texts are about <clears throat> and getting away from any, any mystical aspects at all, I personally would want to write it out and I know that offends a lot of people. You know, any mystical dimension to this at all. This, the Buddha's concern is about human flourishing. How you can best be in this world with others. Yeah. Nibbana is not a mystical experience. Nibbana is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. So and the greatest human flourishing comes about through the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion, and the movement into Upeka, you know, which is the finality, actually, of the Brahmaviharas, the outcome of all the work with metta. Yeah. So it's the natural flourishing we start to do this work, then we naturally begin to find ways of being that hitherto haven't been accessible to us. Yeah. Are inaccessible for all sorts of reasons. Hindrances, fetters, blockages, you know, all of these things which uh, are stopping us from flourishing in this world. So the Buddha's path is a path of human flourishing. It's not a path of something superhuman. Yeah. I think this is, for me, why the figure of the Buddha is so powerful. It is the figure of the Buddha both within the text and that as a powerful figure because he represents the epitome of human flourishing, what is to be in this world. There's an image which is used in a very late text, actually, which is the Avatamsaka, the Avatamsaka Sutta, which is a, a Pure Land Sutta. 
And I don't actually like it very much, the Avatansakasutta, because it's kind of all, you know, it's a great baggy monster of a text. Um, it's all over the place. But it has a wonderful image. It says, the Buddha walks through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. Yeah, I think it's a lovely image. Now, without getting kind of sentimental about it, in a way, um, you know, if you think it, you, if you think your way into what that actually means, it means you go through the world not leaving a wake of destruction behind you, yeah, a wake of detritus, yeah, and misery, but you move through the world actually fulfilling human potential, which is actually um, here to develop dimensions of real understanding and real engagement with ourselves and others and the world itself. And I think that's what's so important about this. Just a few words about the other two Brahma Viharas. It's kind of almost a a whole day on themselves, but just a few words about them. The first, mudita. Let's get away from the idea of sympathetic or empathetic joy. This is not... The actual word mudita actually has its roots in to be gentle. It's gentle joy. Yeah, it's probably the most accurate translation of this, although you don't get that within it. It's a gentle joy. I don't think there's any real equivalent to it in any English language. Um, it has connotations, emotional resonances of, within the Pali, of soft-heartedness, gentleness, tenderness, uh, being suffused with joy and gladness of the heart. Yeah. doesn't sound like too bad a state to be in, does it? <laughs> So these are what are all implied. So mudita, rooted in compassion, is both concern and joy. That's an interesting mixture, isn't it? You know, to be concerned about others and about yourself and yet to be joyful as well. Now, I think you know, joy doesn't get much of a look in in most Buddhist practice. <laughs> it's often that bit that's written out um, I'd like to kind of put in a plea for joy <laughs> in terms of the practice it can all become a bit too pious yeah. and you know, one of the great benefits of my early training was I spent years and years and years with Tibetans and if there's anything I learned from Tibetans it was actually this practice was great fun <laughs> You know, it wasn't just misery. <laughs> it was great fun. And, you know, it was, it was a wonderful, joyful thing to be engaged in, as well as difficult and as well as hard and all the things, other things they emphasize as well. But it was this joyfulness. It was the heart of the practice. And I think we forget that at our own peril, really. You know, that's when your doubts start to creep in that's when you lose a sense of confidence. If there's nothing joyful happening, you need to look at your practice again. You need to refresh it. Yeah. Now, I'm saying this in the context of the Viharas, which is slightly different, but we also need, I think, as I mentioned earlier on, also to appreciate what joyful aspects there are in our lives. Yeah. To regularly celebrate them, as well as celebrating the joys that the others have perhaps which are not in your life. Yeah? So it's celebratory, this joy. There is so much good that is going on out there, as well as the bad. 
And we again forget that at our peril. There's an awful lot of good stuff going on. There's an awful lot of goodness. As Walt Whitman once said, he said, I didn't know I had so much goodness in me. It's in, in his very, very famous poem. So we need to celebrate that from time to time, to come back to the goodness which is there, the goodness in the world and the goodness which is within ourselves, not burying our heads in the sand and not realizing all of the, the dukkha that's out there, all the pain, all the suffering as well. So it's both concern and bliss, concern and joyfulness here. And there's again phrases which are associated with these which help us to rejoice in the joy of others. Yeah. But I would add that little plea as well, rejoice in your own dimensions of goodness too, as well as the difficulties that you have. Now finally, of course, there is Upeka, and those who have been with me for the last couple of days will also know that I feel that Upeka is also the pinnacle of the practice. Upeka is also the goal of this practice, you know, to come into a feeling of equanimity. You know, the greatest happiness, as the Buddha says a number of times in the Pali Canon, is nothing other than contentment. You know, this is the greatest happiness. So it's the lack of the drivenness, it's the lack of the drivenness of craving, of tanha. You know, when tanha is absent, the craving to avoid and the craving to have then there is Zupeka. When that craving is diminished or in its process of being diminished or when it's finally gone, that is what we discover. We discover poise, balance and engagement. And I gave everybody, I'll say this because I know the number of people who weren't here the other day, there's a synonym in the Abhidhamma for Upeka, which is Tatramajatata in Pali. Tatramajatata, this means in the middleness. Yeah. Now, I think this can be interpreted in a number of ways. It's literally in the middle, like not being thrown off balance of something, you know, be, not being swayed by either the good things that happen to you or the bad things that happen. Not being buffeted by the worldly winds, which will constantly buffet us. You know, praise and blame and all this sort of stuff that are constantly buffeting us. So we go out looking for one and we get the other. We don't like what we get, but we wanted the other one and so on and so forth. We're not swayed in other directions. So we literally are poised and balanced in that way. But I also mean it, think it means also literally in the middle of life. So equanimity is not something we do on a mountaintop <laughs> or in a hermit's cave or in a monastery. Equanimity is there to be seen and engaged in an ordinary, average, everyday existence. Our ordinary, average, everyday activities. This is where we need to develop it. If we don't have it, and I think you know, often what we see in our societies is our societies don't have this. What we get is unbalanced and dislocated societies with unbalanced, dislocated people within our societies. This is what it's about. Now, it's about focus as well. And having equanimity also implies aspects of discipline. 
something which is very unpalatable, I think, often in the Western world these days, is actually beginning to build a discipline. As one teacher of mine said to me once, he said, if you want freedom, the only freedom you're going to get is within discipline. Freedom isn't the freedom to do anything. The freedom that you have is the freedom within a particular discipline. And there you will develop equanimity. But this is not rigid discipline. This is not a brutalization again of yourself. This is a discipline such as a rule of training. That almost takes me almost right back to the beginning when I started the other day. Rules of training. This is what precepts are. They're rules of training. Ethicality. Being grounded in ethical inquiry through our rules of training. This is the discipline here. I think I've finished. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's not to sort of stop any questions. If there's any final questions, I'd be very happy to answer them for a few minutes or so. But yeah, I just want to thank everybody for listening for such a long period of time to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.